Well, here we are. This is episode number 50 of the Multipod. It's a pleasure to be with you again today. My name is Ted. I'm your host again for this episode, and I'm very, very pleased to be joined by our very special guest, the one and only Neil Hughes from the UK in Liverpool. Neil, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ted. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. We've uh, had you on our list of potential guests for, I guess, the last two years. <laughs> Because uh, you've been an active and, uh, and very engaged member of the Putty Tribe for a long time. Uh, April of this year, 2020, will mark six years that you've been a member of the Putty Tribe. So I'm sure you're one of the oldest, longest tenured members of the group who are still active. And it's, uh, it's great to see. Um, if, I guess, uh, well, for starters today, we're going to chat about how, you know, this is essentially our second anniversary. We started the the show here, the Multipod, back at the beginning of January of 2018. So we're maybe a couple of weeks into our third year, so our second anniversary. So that's a big milestone, and it's our 50th episode too, and it kind of made us think, well, this is our chance to have a great discussion around the theme of commitment and perseverance and you know, sticking with a project basically through thick and thin, and over a long time, and you know the the feeling of doing that, the satisfaction, the ups and downs, and just and just what it kind of feels like when you do that. And here at the Multipod, I mean, you know, we still enjoy it, and it's still going strong. So, not to say that um, we're close to winding it down. I think by any means, it's just uh, it's a nice milestone. We feel pretty good about it. And Neil, I mean, for someone who's just for starters been involved in the group here for so long. Uh, it said to us, well, maybe this is a guy who has some similar experiences and stories in terms of the kinds of commitments that he's made. And as we say, uh, sticking through things for a long period of time. So that's essentially what we're going to be chatting about today and getting to know Neil a little bit better. So I guess for starters, Neil, uh, how would you, in the old uh, challenge of being a multipod, how would you summarize what you do as your day to day, your job, your life, your career, things like that? My day-to-day is, um, and that's the classic multipod hesitation already, I find it tough to describe. I quit my job a few years ago, so around about the time I joined the Putty Tribe. And actually, I find it quite funny that you're saying I've been there for six years and you know that level of commitment. I think, as you said that, I thought, wow, six years is probably the longest I've done anything. So <laughs> being in the Putty Tribe is possibly the point, the thing in my life that has been the most constant over these you know, 37-odd years now, which is kind of incredible. So yeah, up until a few years ago, I was working um, full-time in software development. I ended up quitting, going on a big kind of self-discovery adventure around about the time I joined the Putty Tribe. And these days, I describe myself as someone who writes books. I do stand-up comedy. I give talks about mental health in particular. I go to a lot of schools and talk about anxiety and share about that through humor. And I do some programming, uh, the odd video game, freelance stuff, and Hmm. just whatever really you know, throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. So the day-to-day is just some combination of all of that. Well, it's impressive. I know for a lot of us listening, and one of the the regular themes in the show, we talk about obviously how people make a living and business and entrepreneur stuff often comes into it. So, I mean, it's impressive to hear that you're able to put it all together and I guess have a steady income and kind of make ends meet, but uh, you're able to do it. Just about, yeah. It's there's one of the things I do miss about the old salaried life is the stability. I think um, you, it's a trade-off between security and happiness, really, for me. Like, I know it's different for everybody, but for me, I've, I've definitely traded away some security and some kind of late nights worrying about where I'm going to get enough money to pay the bills this month. 
in order to be happier in general and to feel like I'm doing stuff that matters. You know, I might not get paid a lot to turn up at school and talk about anxiety and emotions and emotional management, but if I can get paid at all for doing that and make it make the end, ends meet each month, then you know, I'd much rather how I'd spend my time on earth. So, do you ever think about going back to you know a regular job, a full time job kind of thing? Absolutely. Uh, over the last couple of years, I've been on a bit of a journey with that. Um, it's something I've actually been writing about a fair bit. I'll, I'm going to be putting some stuff online about it next month about how last year I really put in a lot of effort to get a job. I thought this lack of security is starting to affect my own mental health again, and maybe I just need to dial it back a little bit. So I started looking around for part-time jobs, something that where I didn't have to wade through the the muck of finding freelance work and you know the struggle of where's the next project going to come from. But just look for something that was two days a week or so, and. I spent the whole of 2018 getting these opportunities lined up that seemed absolutely perfect. And then they'd suddenly be snatched away at the last minute by some, you know, it just wouldn't work out for one reason or another. And, you know, it really felt like the universe was just like, you know, lining up to just, just put what I wanted just within reach and then snatch it away. And so last year I kind I sort of gave up on that a little bit and ended up think I changed tack completely. I set up a little crowdfunder, a Patreon, um, where people can you know, throw a dollar or two a month in f- to support the school's work and the anxiety work. And I just thought, you know, if I can get some stable money coming in from that, then that might just be enough to tide it over. And that actually worked out for me. Really? So, yeah. Um, huh. I've thought about that. You know, when t- you think of people that, with the creators and people have small business and you see the stuff like Patreon, right, and other kind of uh, donation buttons. And one thing I just came across, uh, like yesterday I saw this thing and now it suddenly keeps popping up people put a button on their site and it's like buy so-and-so a coffee, a digital mm. coffee, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is essentially just a donation, but you can send them two or $3. That's the idea. But it actually works out for you that, you know, people, people really do it for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not huge amounts in my case. I, I think my Patreon is up to about, I get about $150 a month, which obviously isn't, it's not huge, isn't, but it's not nothing either. And it it gives me enough ability to go to schools and say, look, I can go here for free. Hmm. Um, in, in the past I was taking days of unpaid to go to a school and do this stuff. And now at least I'm like, okay, there's something coming in for this day. So it just allows some of the work that I want to do to be done with some backing. And hopefully it's a platform I can grow from and kind of, you know, maybe $150 now, maybe, you know, 200, 300, if I can kind of grow it a little bit, I can do more of that work. Mm-hmm. This revolves around your website. It's called Enthusiasm since your last name is Hughes. So E-N-H-U-G-H-E-S-I-A-S-M.com which is a great site. I mean, it's a, it's a fun name. Do people generally approach you like asking you to do a talk or a presentation or something like that? Or do you, are you kind of put, putting yourself out there, maybe cold calling or, you know, looking for clients and opportunities? Yeah. I mean, those are a fun set of questions because they hit on a lot of contradictions for me. Um, for like, for one thing, just the name of the site, like it is a fun name enthusiasm, you know, it, it's a nice little pun on my name. Um, but it's a marketing nightmare because no one can spell it. You say to someone, oh, go to enthusiasm.com and they go, what? You know, it's a, so it's one of these things where when you go there, it's actually, a, it's a nice site. It's you know fun. It's got all the stuff I'm doing. Um, but inherent within it is this marketing nightmare. And I think that that's kind of a big part of my brand is it's a lot of nearly good ideas that are executed in a way that probably wouldn't be considered professional. So similarly with the cold calling and so on, I, my, my marketing is... I don't know. I, I rely a lot on pure luck, which, you know, people, people come to me, people find my website. I think actually the one thing I did that has been very good for growing my presence and getting people to find the work I'm doing was the TED talk. Um, I yeah. did this comedy TED talk about anxiety and just sort of sharing some thoughts I learned about emotions and so on through some humor. 
And that's, you know, been seen by, uh, I think, a quarter of a million people now, which is a little bit terrifying, but also very exciting. And that's the thing I think that led to people finding me. So they then went on to read my book. Um, and I get the odd email from people saying, you know, this talk spoke to me, this, um, your book spoke to me, can you come to our place and do a talk? Can you come here? And apart from that, I've really been focused on doing work locally, building a, a network in my region. So I've been working with charities here and schools and just reaching out to them. So that's the kind of cold calling is very local. And the online brand I've just kind of put out there and just hope people mm. will find my stuff. Do you do kind of any regular content creation? Do you have a blog or I don't think you have a podcast or is it something you, you ever think about doing? Yeah, I mean, I've got a blog um, on walkingoncustard.com. So that's kind of like the twin site that's it's kind of linked and integrated with my other site. And I post fairly regularly there, um, often reposting some of the stuff I've written for Party Like um, and also just new articles about emotions and mental health and so on. And that's my, my regular content creation. I've got a little tool that um, keeps track of how often I've posted to my blog. And if I'm not doing it on average three week, every three weeks, then I get charged money. So it's, I've got really? like a little, character, a little stick for myself just to kind of make sure I do it. It sends me little reminders and then it's like, oh, you need to do one. So that sounds interesting. What, tell us what's the name of the tool. Oh, the tool, it's, it's called uh, beeminder.com. Huh. Beeminder, like be the animal and minder. Like, so reminder okay. yeah. with a sting. And uh, <laughs> the idea is you can set up goals on there that, you know, if you don't do certain amounts of physical activity, you don't write to your blog often enough, you don't write enough words a day or whatever, you can set it up to whatever you like. Hmm. Uh, then it'll, it'll charge you a few dollars. And I, I just find that a handy little tool to keep up motivated for content creation. Do you know what? As long as I'm you know, staying on top of all the stuff I need to stay on top on and then putting in this amount of hours every day, then actually what happens during those hours doesn't matter as much as long as I'm there just showing up and doing the work. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how would you measure the notion of success? I mean, I like thinking about that often because success for me is not just about money. Of course, it's as part of it, I suppose. But it's if I have an objective and the, a real broad objective is how I want to kind of structure my life and the things I do with my time. And mm -hmm. if I'm able to achieve that and sustain it, that to me is success. How do you measure success? It's tough because like you say, I think there's lots of different levels on which you can measure your own success and having a happy life is probably the more important one like for me. Like if I wake up in the morning and I'm getting out of bed, relatively eager and satisfied to be getting on with the stuff I'm doing out there. If I'm thinking, you know, today there's some interesting stuff happening and I'm going to go on a podcast and chat to Ted, that's going to be fun. I'm going to work on something on my website. That's going to be fun. And then, you know, I've got some fun plans for later and, you know, it's all just, and I, with that, some relative security as well, then actually that's perfectly successful. You know, you can live a very happy few decades just in that mode of I'm getting up in the morning and I'm happy and, you know, it's going to be okay. That said, um, you know, there's pictures of success in my mind and involve a lot more um, million dollar checks and hammocks on beaches and cocktails and things, you know, it's like, you know, so, I mean, I, I think about this because, you know, my second book came out a few months ago and when my first book came out, I didn't know, what success looked like, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, you're putting it out there in the world and you're thinking, wow, maybe this is going to be an overnight bestseller. It's going to sell a billion copies and, you know, I'm going to retire in a castle. Maybe one person will ever read it. I literally don't know where in this, where in the spectrum it's going to be. And, uh, you know, it's, it's done well uh, by compared to say most books, but very badly compared to all the top bestsellers. And so that gives you a, a range for your second book. So my second book came out and I, it sold a little bit better than the first book. 
at this point. But again, it's not it's not life changing amounts really. It's just this is helping me pay the bills over the next few months, kind of levels. And success when when you've got such a wide possible range of success when you're doing things, and I think a lot of us we've got this. There's such a wide range of life success when it, when we're thinking about finance. We could be you know, making ends meet, we could be comfortable, we could be millionaires, you know, our, our entrepreneurial businesses could all take off massively. And I think it's very hard to know where on that band of success to be comparing yourself. So again, when I try and think, when I find myself thinking about that mode of success, like answering the question on that level, all I try and do is think, is this a bit better than where I was a few years ago? And, you know, the second book selling slightly better than the first book was at this point. That's cool. You know, if I write a third book, then maybe that'll sell slightly better again. And I'm, I, I kind of try to have that mentality. And if one of them suddenly becomes a breakout success in the in the global scheme of things, that would obviously be nice. But it doesn't actually matter as long as on the main level, I'm getting up in the morning and I'm happy. Yeah, I like that. It's a good measure of that kind of incremental, steady, slow and steady progress, I suppose. But I really wanted to ask you about your books because, I mean, you know, you've written two books and that's an amazing achievement in and of itself. Like so many of us, I'm sure people, everyone listening at least thinks about writing a book. And, you know, I do. I don't have any specific plans, but it's crossed my mind. That'd be a great thing to do. How to even begin kind of planning and putting it together. It seems like um, such an intimidating thing. What drove you to become an author and, and what was your process for seeing it through to completion? Again, with coming back to our theme of today, like how long did it take and how did you make sure you got it done? Yeah. And again, it's one of those things that from outside, like I can hear you say that and I think, wow, that does sound impressive. <laughs> well done. Um, but from inside, I'm thinking, I, I'm aware of the total mess it was to write both these two books and how hard it was to motivate myself to actually get it done and the amount of days wasted and you know all this kinds of thing. Like there's there's a lot of sort of messy internals involved in the process that when you say it like that I think oh yeah I guess it is quite impressive but I don't often think of it as that way I usually think from inside it feels like I'm stumbling around each day desperately trying to get some words down and maybe it'll ultimately end up in a book so what drove me to become an author I mean partly I'd always wanted to I think as a like throughout my life there's always been this period of the sense that I definitely could write a book but there's also absolute doubt that I'd be able to do it. You know, there's that kind of duality of, you know, I could convince myself either way, but there was always a desire there. And then after I went through this, um, I went through a very difficult few years with anxiety. And then after that, I, uh, I learned a lot. Like I kind of went through a really dark patch, learned lots about myself and started to write down what I'd learned really just to put it in order. And as I was writing it, I thought, it was at the time it was just for me I was just writing this is what I learned in this order and this is how how I would put it in order just for my own brain and I thought well maybe people would like this maybe you know this could turn into a book and that kind of desire that had always been there was sparked and I at that point once I'd started it was remarkably easy to keep going I think I kind of weaponized the sunk cost fallacy uh, where you know the amount of time I'd spent in it meant or if, if I if I stop now, then I've wasted all those days, I've wasted all those weeks, I've wasted all those months. So I kind of, I, I, don't, I don't think there's some, some cost fallacy is a wise way to think. But if you can kind of use it to fuel your actions, then it certainly helped me because I was just like, right, I'm, no matter what now I'm finishing this, if I turn this into a book and put it out there and the only person who ever reads it is my own mum, then that's cool. You know, at least I've done it. And maybe, you know, it'll help some other people out there. Maybe it'll entertain someone. Maybe there'll be some useful insights. I guess I just stayed motivated by simultaneously imagining the end imagining this is what it's going to feel like when it's out there and each day not imagining the end just being like you know what i'm just going to sit at this process the program 
and I'm going to work on it a bit more and try and make it try and make it better, try and add some words to it, try and improve it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's that's good advice. You know, I hear what you're saying about just making those incremental uh, steps and and you know making progress. Well, your two books are Walking on Custard. Of course, it's a great title, and you can get the gist of it if you watch the TED Talk. We'll put links to this in our show notes for everyone who wants to follow up, of course. But um, that was your, you call it a humorous, helpful guide to life with anxiety. And then your second book is The Shot Before Life. I mean, you kind of have two complete opposites, one that's obviously nonfiction and the other one that very much is fiction, mm-hmm. driven to try those two different genres. It's, it's the classic multipod experience, really, of doing one thing and then being like, well, I'm not going to use what I learned. I'm just going to go and do something completely different. There was a big part of me while I was writing Walking on Custard it was one of the stresses I was having apart from, like you say, the magnitude of the project itself. It, it, it is intimidating and you have to kind of put that to one side and just keep doing those incremental things. But one of the struggles I had was the fact it was nonfiction and that it was, it was mostly nonfiction. There's little bits of fiction in there, but there were lots of bits where I was trying to give, like, give ideas that might be helpful to people, which meant that I felt a lot of pressure to be correct. So I'd be out there reading all the journals and reading psychology um, textbooks and things and just you know I didn't want to put stuff out there that that might not be correct you know so there was this real stress to find the right answer and the whole time I was thinking oh, I can't wait to write a novel so I can just make it up and I can just do whatever I like you know there's no rules and it's fiction and it'd be great and then of course I go to write a novel and discover it's a complete nightmare to have no rules and no right answer because there's now far too much freedom and at any point you could just do anything with your story and there's no one to tell you that's wrong you just have to justify what the right what the right path for your story is. And it become, I think having to learn how to tell a story and how to set good constraints that are going to tell a satisfying story and going to surprise the reader and going to entertain the reader and be compelling was a whole other learning curve, uh, which I, I mean, I knew it would happen. I knew this is going to be difficult. But I think part of me was like, oh, I've written a book before. But it was very different writing fiction to nonfiction. I am excited to write another fiction book because at least I'll now have been able to be building on some of those skills from the last one. Yeah, well, that's the next question. Do you have another book in mind? Um, I'm currently working on two, obviously. Um, both both novels, they're just ideas I'm playing around with. Um, one is a whole other world, you know, completely different. And the other one is, again, set in the pre-life where the shop before life is set. So it's it's like the, the idea is it's like the afterlife, but it's where you are before you're born. So it's kind of like this other plane where people in the first book, people visit the shop before life to choose what kind of person they're going to become down on earth. And, yeah, the second book is kind of following on from the events of that, possibly. If, if I end up finishing it, we'll see. It's It's very early stages at this point. Aside from your books, do you have any other kind of major projects like that on the go? Yeah. So one thing I did last year, uh, once the once I'd finished the draft of the second book, but before it was published, so in the kind of interim period while it was going through the publication hoops, um, I ended up writing a video game that was based on The Shop of All Life. Hmm. So it's like an online game you can go to where you kind of make personality traits to stock the shop. And I had, had a lot of fun making it and putting it out there. And it's actually had you know, thousands of plays, which has been very exciting. That, this year, I thought, you know what? This is something I've always always wanted to do as well is play around more with games. And so I'm going to, I'm creating a couple more online games, um, tying some of those in with mental health as well. I've got a kind of a game planned around the theme of mental health and emotional management. You know, we love in this show how we get to chat with people and get to know members of the tribe and just the amazing range of interests and skills and the things people bring to reality 
mm-hmm. their lives. It's such a wide range of kind of random stuff, and yet it all comes together. And you're a great example of that, you know, to go from being a writer to public speaking and then creating video games and all kinds of things. It's really neat. It's fun. It's it's kind of what I wanted to do when I set out to do this whole kind of multi-pod experience. You know, I, was, I, I sat down. In fact, before I discovered the Putty Tribe, I... I kind of imagined this career for myself. Like this is back while I was still working full time before I'd even heard of the concept of multi-potentiality. And I had this idea, you know, what if I spent a day a week writing and a day a week coding and maybe did some stand up? And I, I'd kind of been the whole idea was impossible. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I went and, you know, I started writing the book and I, I was like, you know, I'm really going to give this a go. I'm going to try taking on some freelance work. I'm going to write this book. I'm going to take some comedy gigs. And that's when I discovered the Buddy Tribe and found the support there. And I totally agree with you. Like one of the best things about being there for, six years now, my goodness, is meeting all the people and being blown away by the the range of what people do, you know, because everyone you meet tends to have this kind of incredibly, it's just diverse. You you talk talk, talk to someone about one thing and they go, oh, and by the way, I'm, you know, also a master basket weaver. And you just, oh, of course you are. You know, it's it's just awesome. How have you seen the Putty Tribe change and evolve in the time you've you've been there, especially as one of the early uh, members? Yeah, it's... It's changed quite a bit, but at the same time, at heart, it's very, remained very much the same. So, you know, the, the interfaces changed, the the style of huddles. I, I think when I first joined, there was a lot more, or at least I, there was a lot more emphasis on the kind of the huddle meetings and getting online with people and having video chats. I did a lot of online co-working um, back in those days. Whereas these days, I but maybe this is just my own usage. I'm sure this all still happens, and maybe I'm just now using it more as a place to chat with people and on the forum. So that evolves. But at heart, it's remained very similar. It's fundamentally a place to meet people who are doing a diverse range of things or are interested in a diverse range of things, and who will understand when you start talking about the struggle of balancing this against that, and you know, time and time management, and the worries you have when you're comparing yourself to specialists in a particular field, and you know, all the kind of things that that tend to pop up for. Uh, multi-potentialites it's all still there and it stayed very much the same at heart um you just came back from a trip over here to north america did you meet anyone from the putty tribe on your trip um i actually did i hung around with emily um who you might know um she, she founded the putty tribe so I, st- I hung out with her in uh, in cleveland for a few days that was really fun huh. um and uh, someone else in canada in toronto a writer friend of mine who i met through the putty tribe as well so yeah. Actually, that's a good thing about it is the travel I've done in recent years, there's usually someone from the party tribe there or thereabouts. So you can usually get a coffee with someone and meet some cool people. And yeah, I found that very cool. Well, we chatted about you coming on the show here about a week ago. And then coincidentally, in the most recent uh, newsletter, there was a link to the great blog post that you put on Putty Like, which is uh, a fun thing to do, to have the opportunity to do that. Um, but, you know, where you talked a bit about, um, I guess, your experience understanding of anxiety in particular about public speaking so i really wanted to ask you about this i mean you've you've done a lot of public speaking and you have this amazing ted talk of course as evidence for it uh but of course it's it's a tough it's been a tough journey for you how have you been able to keep your commitment to yourself to like to keep at it knowing you have that anxiety yeah and this is that was an interesting post for me to write because it's an area of anxiety I hadn't explored a lot really I, I've sort of talked about anxiety in general and my health anxiety and so on but this kind of public speaking anxiety is one that had always been there since I was a kid and yet it's always been such a big part of my life part of it comes from the fact that I'd always wanted to do it so even as a kid even as I was growing up I wanted to be that person who'd be in front of people and entertain them and make them laugh and get on be able to get on stage and be funny 
Um, but I was very self-conscious and the, there was a few times where I found that, you know, the sort of self-consciousness overwhelmed my ability to do things. And then it became a bit of a trauma and became difficult. There's lots of different stages of how I learned to go from there to where I am now. And at first it was honestly just forcing myself to do it. It was putting myself in a position where I would do things, even if it was uncomfortable, I'd get on stage in the school show and maybe I'd only have a small part, but I'd, I'd be there and I'd be like proud of the fact that I'd done it, even though I felt really scared. And then I started taking these opportunities to, to give presentations and give talks. And I found people liked them, you know, they liked the jokes. They, I started experimenting a bit more with the jokes and trying to you know, make, make the comedy more of the, uh, more of the focus. And eventually, I, I guess there was a moment a few years ago when I, I sort of really developed the confidence in it. Cause at that point I was regularly giving these presentations. I was taking opportunities to give talks in different areas and, um, doing it quite a lot but I never felt I still never felt comfortable and there was this particular time when I was at a festival and uh, a, like a kind of music festival and on the last night I was walking through the woods back to my tent having had a couple of pints of cider and I came across people gathered around a piano uh, just a whole bunch of people in the woods there was just a piano because that was the kind of festival it was and some, some guy was playing some music everyone was having a sing-along and I kind of joined in and after the guy finished playing, he sort of said, uh, is anyone, anyone else want to play? And I was sort of, I'd had exactly the right amount of cider to think, this is a good idea. So I went and sat down and um, I sort of did a little comedy speech. I sort of turned around, did, uh, did a little intro to a song, made some jokes and then played this comedy song and did a few more of those. And it went brilliantly. Hmm. Like I was just kind of entertaining. It was exactly the kind of person I, I fantasized myself with being. And after it finished, I, I, some guy came to me and said, do you do this professionally? Are you a comedian? And I was like, no, I'd never, at this point, I'd never performed in a comedy club in my life. I'd just kind of done the odd joke here and there in, in these sort of presentations. And as I drove home from the festival the next day, that comment just sort of stuck with me. You know, he was like, he thought I was professional. He was like, you're a professional comedian. And it all the way home. I, and then when I got back at the time I was living in London, I got back to London and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get up, get on stage in a comedy club and, and do some material and it went great and I got invited to a sort of more prestigious comedy club went and performed there and it kind of all took off but the whole time I mean so for the first year after that I was doing these comedy gigs and each time it was kind of a source of great anxiety as the gig was coming up I was torturing myself torturing myself torturing myself and then I'd get on stage and I'd do it and it'd be, it'd be fine it'd go great and I think that the lesson I learned from it all was that up until that point in my life, I'd been suffering anyway. I'd been sitting there in the clubs. I was a comedy fan. I'd be sit, or I'd be sitting there at a conference watching someone tell, you know, do a presentation, and I'd I'd be comparing myself to the person at the microphone. I'd be saying, "I should be doing this. I could do this. I want to do this." So if I never did it, I'd be suffering just from not doing it. I'd be beating myself up over and over again for not doing this thing that I wanted to do. And I th I sort of had this realization over that first year of doing stand up properly that. Actually, if I'm going to suffer either way, I might as well do it. I might as well get up on stage, suffer from the fact I'm doing it, but also do the thing and do well at it. And over time, that was enough to just to keep me going. And then the sort of buildup of evidence that it was okay started to overwhelm the fear in my brain. So after you've done something more and more and more, it's, it's still scary, but it gets less and less scary. But at first, it was always about putting myself in those uncomfortable situations, doing the scary thing, realizing that actually choosing my kind of suffering is better. And then eventually just practice makes perfect. Mm -hmm. And you're still doing it nowadays? Yeah. Uh, these days, more often in um, comedy talks about mental health. So 
um, going to schools and conferences, uh, businesses, just where universities, wherever invites me really, and I'll do an hour of stand up that's also helpful with emotional management. So it's a kind of mix of uh, helpful and humorous is what I'm going for. Alone, every now and then I'll do the odd like pure stand up gig in the evening just for the creative outlet. Well, that's the thing. I mean, as an example, like you talk about when you would sit in the audience and watch people do it and know that you you felt that you could do it too. And that was that gave you some strength and confidence because you knew how to do it. It's yeah. different from, I guess, a different kind of stage fright or anxiety in that if I was on stage with the microphone staying in a comedy club, let's say, I wouldn't know what to say or where to even begin kind of thing. Like you knew what to do. It was just finding the courage and the middle of a mix of between that comfort zone and, you know, still the, the rawness of being out there on stage, right? Drawing from that inner confidence and just the knowledge that you knew what to do. You knew that you could do it or figure it out. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think you've hit on something interesting there because there was a long period of time where I had to very... Um, I planned my comedy routines down to the nearest word. You know, I'd sort of memorize it down down to the word and I, I'd feel very afraid of the idea of veering off script. And I had to kind of learn to relax that and learn to trust myself to uh, handle things on the spot as well. I think I could, you could kind of liken it to going from someone who's you know, maybe playing the piano and all you can do is read the music perfectly. You know, you'd, and if, if you didn't have music, you'd feel very you know, unsure how to sight read, unsure how to kind of play by ear and learning to play by ear. And part of that is just learning the skill. It's learning the putting yourself in a position where you have to do it. So getting on stage with a slightly less developed plan and just showing yourself that it's okay. And then learning to trust yourself more and more over time. I think trusting yourself is a big part of it. And, you know, obviously this is stand up for me, but for lots of other people, there's other areas where we struggle in trusting our inability to do things, even if actually we probably could do it. Right. And your story of uh, public speaking and comedy is a testament to, uh, perseverance and making that commitment, you know, for, for years now, I guess. And uh, which brings us kind of back to where we started this episode, our conversation talking about the feeling, the satisfaction of committing to something and where, you know, you get to that point where you're years down the road and you can kind of look back with satisfaction of, of how far you've come and the achievement of just sticking with it through all the ups and downs. So, it's a it's a great uh, story, a great example from the, the things that you've done, and you know we all look forward to seeing what you're going to come up with next. I think uh, it's fair to say you're one of the more prominent members of the tribe. You love to uh, contribute, and and we we see the kinds of things you come up with. Uh, it's it's a great journey to to follow the journey that you're on. So it's been great to get to know you. Of course, we've, as I say, we've had you on our list for a long time, and I'm glad that it. Uh, it finally worked out here and especially for this show, our 50th show. So it really wraps things up nicely. Thanks, Ted. It's been, it's gone very fast. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Yeah. Well, as I say, we'll keep in touch and hopefully we'll have you on the show again. I'd love to. All right. So we're back. It's Ted. It's uh, Vanessa's with me now. And um, it's, we're going to do a little extra bit here to wrap up this episode, being that it is episode 50, a big moment for us uh, to get to this point. So, you know, Vanessa's been a huge part of that. We were just chatting about when she joined on our show. It wasn't quite at the beginning. It was about like five months or so in, but still it was uh, pretty much right back there in the early days. And, and you've been a big part of it ever since. So thank you. 
Well, yeah, it's been, I mean, thanks to you. And, and of course, Sarah, who couldn't join us today, we'll try to catch up with her as soon as we can. But Hope so. You know, and, and that's a good point, too. There's been lots of people involved in this show from the beginning. If you think about it, there's been uh, Sandrine and I who, who launched the show back two years ago. And mm-hmm. uh, there's uh, Joel who helped us set us up. And uh, he's always been there in the background, you know, giving us advice from time to time. There's Mike who uh, concentrated on the show notes for the first year and a bit and then kind of passed it on to the rest of us. We found we were often asking him at like the last minute, you know, that we scrambled to get <laughs> episodes out. And then yeah. Mike, can, you, can you write show notes for us in the next two hours? And <laughs> which was Sorry. Really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he gave us a good kind of format and template to get started. So that, that really helped us out. And uh, I don't want to forget anyone. There's been Jillian who um, hosted a few episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Clay who stepped in as a, a guest host, Clay from South Africa, who lives in, in Italy. And he was the feature of an episode, I think, yeah. too, wasn't yeah, he? Was, yeah, it was true. very interesting. That was kind of neat because like, he he was a guest, and then right away he's like, well, that was fun. Can I help out? Can I do more? And I was like, do you want to host the next episode? So <laughs> he dove right in. Yeah. So he was there. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's been a few people, you know, and as, as we always say, it's, uh, the show's open to anyone to join in because I think it's fair to say that we're going strong and we've put in a bit of extra effort, especially Vanessa and I, of course, over the next, over the last couple months, maybe to, uh, you know, kind of get a good pattern here going a good routine, get it down to a nice length. This episode would be a little different because we're going to add a bit extra here, but we've kind of hit our sweet spot, you know, say 35 minutes. Mm-hmm. basically in length, which is a good length in general, and uh, get a nice conversation, a little bit at the beginning and the end, and uh, settled into a good groove. For sure. How is this compared to, for you, like compared to other shows that you've been involved in? Well, something I really like about our team here is because we have a pretty big-ish group, it's possible for somebody to step in if somebody else is like, life is too crazy right now and I just can't do anything for a little while. So like Sarah, for example, is uh, really focusing on her artwork right now, on her art right now. And I'm not 100% sure what she's doing, but it's been really, really busy and amazing. It seems like she's doing some really cool stuff. But she's like, yeah, it's really hard for me to jump into the podcast right now, which is totally understandable. So Ted and I are like, all right, let's get it done. (laughs) Um, But then there's been other times where like, I've been like, oh, life is just too much right now. And Sarah has been like, I'm available. I'll definitely help out. So and then Ted, of course, is like kind of always our constant person. Well, kind of, but then I've been busy in summers, right? That's so true. that's when, when you guys have helped out, at least in July and August. Yeah, so. that's definitely true. So yeah. that's a really cool thing because other podcasts that I've worked on are not like that. But, you know, like each podcast is different, right? I have a podcasting friend who recently announced that uh, she and her co-host are on their 100th episode and it's going to be their last one. And it's really because of life circumstances. And they're like, we just... You know, it's just not really going to work to keep it going. And it's, as far as I know, it's an amicable thing. It's not something where they're like having a fight. I do know somebody who also stopped doing a podcast because she and her co-host had a fight. So, you know, Mm. dynamics are interesting. Sure. And um, it's like any kind of project, especially for multi-potentialites, I think we find value in finishing things purposefully. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead of just letting it fade, I, I'm sure that's what will happen to this show whenever it comes to that, which yeah. could be years from now. But, yeah. you know, when we decide, okay, we've, you know, we've, we've accomplished what we're after, it's time for a change. And it would be a definitive. We'd probably have a big uh, 
party final episode and totally. <laughs> you know and celebrate it right and that's yeah. cool i think if you do it with intention then that's uh, that's nice we've uh yeah. we've, the biggest thing with this show i guess is just making the commitment i think it's been a real testament to i guess to us as multi-potentialites you know to stick with that and to gain the experience and to now look back on two years and Mm-hmm. Um, that through all the highs and lows, we only ever had one brief little pause like last summer for about a month, but that's it. Mm-hmm. We've really kept it going. So yeah. it's, uh, it's been a badge of honor and that's uh, one of the satisfying things about doing this. Yeah, definitely. And I will say one thing about doing a podcast about multipotentiality that has been really cool is it has helped me learn more about who I am as a multipotentialite. It's also really mm-hmm. reinforced that for me, podcasting is like, the ultimate multi-potentialite thing to do. And that's because the podcasting part of it stays constant, but the themes, the topics, the people you talk to, the format, all those different things can change and it keeps it really interesting. And so I think that's one reason I've been sticking with podcasting for like five years. And my X-Files show has been around for five years, but I've actually been producing podcasts for clients and that kind of thing for like two of those years. And Hmm. it's just made things really interesting. And so um, if anybody out there listening is really interested in like radio, broadcasting, podcasting, and considers themselves a multipotentialite, I really think it's a great way to express your (laughs) multipotentiality. Yep. It's a great platform for conversation and discussion, um, which is kind of the the ethos of this show mm-hmm. more than anything. You know, we, we try to put out some actionable tips and advice and things like that. But I think for us, the host and for hopefully everybody listening, it's really just about good conversation, getting to know people and exploring some of these topics. So Definitely. that's uh, that's a real asset to, to doing something like this. And it's a way to step out of your comfort zone. Um, a nice thing about podcasting is it's not live usually. So uh, if we have somebody who's like, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about being on as a guest. We're like, look, we're going to edit it. Mm-hmm. If you mess up, you can start <laughs> over again. If you say, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. We can take out whatever you said. And that's another nice thing too. So. Well, you know, it's been fun. It's been a great journey for two years and it's going to continue. I'm, I'm excited for what's to come and lots more people to meet from the Putty Tribe and get to know them and share their story. Definitely. Can you tell us a bit about the next episode you've got lined up, episode 51? Yeah. Plan for that. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. I'm going to be talking to, and I really, I have to double check how to pronounce her name. I believe it's Niyusha. She went on the forum, the Putty Tribe forum, and was talking about something that she kind of came up with herself, as far as I understand, called the passion distribution theorem. And it's kind of math based. So I'm a little nervous about talking about that because my math skills are not great. But it sounds like a really, really cool way to look like what she was doing is looking at her varied interests and her passions and figuring out what percentage she wants to be focusing on the different things and what percentage she actually is focusing on the different things. Well, it's kind of a way of expressing things like instead of um, like a visual reference, but instead with numbers, if it's percentages, mm-hmm. maybe, but it helps you kind of picture and frame the amount of time and effort you're putting into your various interests and projects, yeah. I guess, right? It so. sounds very cool. I, when I say math, it was also that she kept using the word coefficient in her post on <laughs> the forum. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't even remember what the coefficient is. So I'll be doing a little bit of research before we talk, but it's going to be interesting. Yeah. 
Well, I guess we'll leave it at that. Um, I'll collect a few putty peeps of the week for our next episode and uh, put them together for our profiles there. Sounds good. And meanwhile, we'll wrap it up. As we always say, you can reach out to us. You can uh, leave a message on the forum in response to this episode when we post it there for all of you who are members of the Putty Tribe, of course. And you can leave any comments, questions, whatever you like. You can leave a message for Vanessa or myself or Sarah directly. And you can write to us at our dedicated email address, which is themultipodcast at gmail.com. Either way, whatever you like, we'll get back to you. And we always encourage people to help out, get involved in the show, and uh, make the most of the opportunity to learn about and practice podcasting because this is your chance. That's what we're here for. So thanks very much, everybody. Yes, thank you so much for listening. It's been awesome. (laughs) Great. And we'll talk to you next episode. All right. Bye. Bye.